Hey, Lee. Good afternoon again. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Good. All right, you ready? I am. All right, let's do it. Oh, see, now hold on. See, I'm having trouble with this recording again. Okay, here we go. Okay. Just a second here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. Uh, this is a podcast all about actors and other artists um, and their lives and their careers and how they do what they do and the nuts and bolts and how they balance everything and advice and all that kind of stuff. Um, so my guest uh, is actor Ella Smith. Um, she's been acting in New York for about how long now, Ella? Well, I came for school about seven and a half years ago, but so I've been out in the real world, I guess, for three-ish years, a little more than three years now. Well, there you go. Excellent. Um, yeah, you went to Stella Adler and you also got to study Shakespeare in London, right? Which I'm really excited to talk to you about. Yes. All right, cool. Yes. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, uh-huh. I like to start by just asking you to give everybody a little bit of an overview of what your life consists of these days, if you're working on anything, uh, any acting projects at the moment, and also if you have any day jobs and kind of what your day-to-day routine is at this point. Yeah, so every day I feel like is a complete new adventure. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, I'm like, what am I even doing tomorrow? I have to check my schedule. Um, so, yes, I am trying to be a working actress in New York City as a young 20-something, which has all of its challenges and joys. Um, you know, every day is, I, I envy the people who have nine to fives because I feel like, you know, as an actor, your work is never finished. You don't really get weekends. Every evening you're spent submitting to things. I try and submit, do you, you know, do you 20 really, things every do you really, Do you really envy those people, though, honestly? I, I envy how they're able to put their work away. And I've had ah, to okay. kind of train myself to say, okay, the weekends or this evening I'm going to allow myself to just relax. I have a hard time just like watching TV or relaxing. I always feel like I should be doing something. Um, and I, I, since I started dating my boyfriend who does have a nine to five, I try and let myself relax on the weekends when I can spend time with him because there's always, you always feel like I want to be more successful. I want to be further in my career and I'm, you know, it's fun, but I, I also have a lot of anxiety around it and feeling like i got to push myself harder. I've got to hustle harder. Um, so, no, I don't envy working a nine-to-five, but I envy some things about the, the routine and the schedule of it. But at the same time, I like not doing the same thing every day, and I have a lot of freedom, you know, so that's a perk to that. Um, but in terms of other jobs that I'm doing uh, while I'm working to be an actor, I, I have a manager right now, so I get auditions. I just had an audition with her today where I had to wear a swimsuit, and it's the middle of winter here. <laughs> so that was always something interesting at an audition. Um, well, not only that, yeah. the last couple of days have gotten much colder again, so very bad time oh. for you on that. 
Yes. Luckily, I mean, I was like, oh, my gosh, my legs are so white. Like, how does, I'm not prepared for this. Um, was, this, this, for a, was this for a commercial or what was this for? Yeah, it was for a, a casino commercial. Oh, okay. So it was for the role of woman at the pool, you know, so, you know, funny commercial <laughs> parts. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in terms of other jobs that I do, I work at a restaurant currently as a server. Um, I also babysit, and then I teach acting classes at Rikers Island Correctional Facility, which is the best job I could ever ask for. Yeah, so as you know, uh, as I responded in the email, you know, that one really struck me. Um, you know, I, I have to admit that I would you know, not be willing to do that myself. I would definitely be nervous about that. Um, so that's very impressive. Um, I would love to hear about that. What is it? How did you get it? And, and what is it like? Sure. So, um, well, I was at NYU. I trained at the Stella Adler Studio of Acting. And they have um, kind of a motto that's, uh, growth as an actor and growth as a human being are synonymous. And there's always been kind of a, a pillar of the studio that's had a lot of focus on, um, well, they call it the outreach division. And so it's basically providing theater training and bringing theater to underserved communities, people who might not have seen theater before, might not otherwise have an opportunity to take an acting class. Um this is a big um, mission of the artistic director of the studio, Tom Oppenheim. And it was his idea to take acting classes into um, like rehab, like halfway houses for people uh, getting out of rehab and, and um, dealing with addiction. And then also into um, city jails. And I think it's been going on for about 10 years or more um, and so one day I heard about it at the studio that the, the director of the outreach department, um, was looking for some students to basically come take class at Rikers and to serve as like model students in the classroom. Um, cause these, you know, maybe these, these individuals taking the class at Rikers, it's, Maybe they haven't really seen a play or something, and and it's always good to have to have um, a trained student or trained actor in there to kind of push the group in a good direction and facilitate creativity and inspire. And and it really really works because a lot of the students like myself who came in as ambassadors, we had so much fun, you know, just just playing and being equals and being uh, fellow students and listening to our our teacher of the class. And um, I really just. Such a blast. I learned something every single day. Um, so I first started this training, this ambassador volunteer work, um, like two years ago, I believe. And we were working at one of the housing units with adult men. And um, it was just such a joyful, creative, inspirational experience. Um, we were really lucky at the time to have uh, the opportunity to take the class in, um, the, the church, quote unquote church area, which is just a, a room. Um, and so the, the guys would come to class, come into the room and, and our, our mentor, the teacher of the class who I was learning from, his name's, 
uh, Tommy Demukov. He is so skilled. He's been teaching, in, you know, in, in jails for 15 years. And he always did something which was so amazing to me. As soon as the guys would be brought down and walk into the room, he would applaud. And we would all applaud. He's like, you made it. Thanks for coming today. You made it. And right away, the energy was really something special. Um, you know, it was one of, of fun and playful energy and respect. And you kind of saw often the guys walking in being like, what have I gotten myself into? What is this? Um, and then they would take class and... The rule is that if you came, you had to participate because no one can just watch and judge because as actors and artists know, we can be in pre- like absolutely silly, playful, and vulnerable to get up on stage if you've never done it before, even if you have done it a million times. Um, it's a vulnerable, you know, brave, courageous, playful experience. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. Again, I learned so much. Um, when that teacher, Tommy Dinkoff, he actually got promoted, or he had a music program, he started working with the DOC, the Department of Corrections, um, as the head of all arts education there. So, big job, super cool for him, and he transferred his class over to me, so he kind of uh, trained me to take his place. Um, so, since then, I, I taught the men, and then later I was uh, switched over to teaching young adult women, um, which I'm currently working with right now. So young adults are 18 to 21, um, and working with women is an entirely different experience, so different, I could not believe it. Um, so that's been really interesting. That was a challenge, too, especially working with young women who are closer to my age. Um, you know, there's there's some maybe, like, questions or mistrust when I first walk in that you kind of, after two or three classes, they start to just have a blast and it feels like a big slumber party and just talking about, you know, everything and our lives and and having fun and taking the afternoon classes and, and seeing the, the bravery that comes out of that from those young women um, and the joy, you know, people would always say, I haven't laughed like this in forever. Gosh, like, I, I haven't laughed like this. Um, so that's always really wonderful to hear because for me that's what I love about acting and about theater is, is the playfulness of it and the silliness of it so so yeah it's a really really cool job and I feel really lucky to have it that's really remarkable uh, on a lot of different levels and I think it speaks to you know a lot of us have apprehension or preconceived ideas about what these people in prison are like and what it would be like to be in that environment with them. Um, but I think uh, you're obviously demonstrating that it can be uh, very positive, actually, in that sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's really impressive. You know, that's great. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're walking down the halls, there there are some people who have to be, when they're trans being transported, they have to be in handcuffs or something, or they have to admittance because they're um, violent. But for the most part, like, people, I mean, they're not all violent individuals, right? Like, that's just right. a, a small percentage. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'll go, you're technically not supposed to give hugs, but I've given hugs to the guys because they're just, you know, become my friends. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not as strange as you would think. In the end, they're all just people. 
Um, and I, I don't ask, you know, why are you here? Sometimes they'll come out and tell me. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, and when they do tell you, you don't always, I mean, they could be lying. Who, who knows? You know, like, who knows what they want you to believe or if they're working on a case, you know, because it's, a, so it's jail, uh, not a prison. And a jail means you're awaiting trial or you've been sentenced, but the sentence is so short that there's no point in moving you upstate to a prison. So it's a very transitory time. And I think jails are, are much harder places for people to be than prisons because often when you go to a prison, people might have been there for a decade or, or a few years and, and there's a, a kind of a ritual to the life, you know, that people make lives there. And in jail, um, I think there's everything's so up in the air and people are fighting court cases and dealing with that. And it's a really trying time for a person and there's a lot of a lot of mental health you know issues like you know I'm I'm someone who I've had a very you know privileged good caring life with a stable home and I've gone to therapy and you know I just can't imagine that some circumstances that some of these individuals come from like all you want is to give them a good therapist and a, and a safe home you know especially working with the young women I mean Technically, they're adults, but they they look like babies. You know, they they're so innocent and sweet, and um, you know, and, and some are challenging. I don't want to, you know, give you all one impression. Um, everyone's an individual there, so but I, the, you just have to think about like often the circumstances that all these individuals come from, and I would say less than ten percent of people in jail that I've encountered are white. So it just tells you that there's such a disparity there. Yes. Um, and a lot of it is due to poverty. And um, I don't know, I think it's really important for people to see that. And luckily, right now, there's kind of a movement to change the way the United States has the prison system. Um, and I just hope that that continues to gain momentum because... I don't believe in prisons, and obviously there are some people who are very violent. You know, I'm watching the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix, and he seems like a sociopath and should be locked up for life, you know, but that, what, what's the percentage of individuals who are actually like that? You know, a lot of the time it's just bad luck or racism or, you know, horrible environments that people had to do things to survive and or and make bad decisions. You know, I, I don't know obviously all these cases, but all I can say is that I go in and, and connect to these students just in the level of an acting class. And I'm a teacher and they're students and we're all just having fun doing some improv and playing acting ga- games and working as an ensemble and working on scene work and writing plays and um yeah, sometimes it doesn't even feel like I'm I'm in a jail. You know, we get lost in the imagination of it. Um, other times, it really does feel like I'm in a jail. You know, so yeah, it's remar- yeah, it's remarkable. And um, and what is the the structure of it? Is it is it the same group for you know X number of weeks? Yeah, to work with them over a, over a period of time or. Yeah, so when I was originally working with the 
um, adult men. Um, again, I mentioned that was in a, a neutral space, so I would have individuals for different housing units come down, um, and and you had to be on good behavior in order to like you know leave the housing unit and take a class. Like I've always a really really great group of guys. Um, and the structure was that I had the class for two hours. Um, often there's delays in getting the students down to class, so it ended up usually being about an hour and a half. And um, I would structure it um, with a beginning of warm-up, a physical warm-up, some ensemble building games, a vocal warm-up, tongue twisters, some beginning scene work, um, maybe then some text work dealing with um, haikus or poetry or um, I love bringing Pablo Neruda, Neruda in. Um, Rupi Carr is another favorite poet of mine that I love bringing in. Um, or I often brought in scenes from plays from All My Sons, you know, The Crucible. Um, stuff by Stephen Atley Gerges was really popular. Um, and we would kind of do some text analysis. Um, with the scripts and that part was kind of sitting down and then finally the third part of the class would be scene work um, and what always was really useful was open scenes so those are the scenes that just are like character A, character B and they don't tell you a time or they don't tell you place, they don't tell you character, they don't tell you setting um, or what's happening it's just maybe four to six lines and the actors have to then take it and decide who they are, where they are, and what are they doing. And it's just four or six lines. And um, it, it encourages them to be specific and make choices and um, use their imagination, make decisions, um, and then wrap up. Uh, I uh, took what my mentor Tommy did, which was give me your last word, you know, like, what do you think about class or what do you learn? Give me your last word, you know, and people would say like, amazing, fun, inspirational, challenging, um, or something like that. And that was always kind of a really nice way to close. Um, however, there has since been kind of a push to have, um, these programs in the actual housing unit rather than in a neutral place like the chapel um, because it is easier for the officers because the officers don't have to collect a bunch of students and transport them down and such things like that. And I think you needed some extra officers kind of. Uh, we had two officers in class with us. You know, they're really amazing, amazing women uh, who are part of the program's um, our department, um, so helpful in making these classes possible. Um, so now I am teaching the young women in their housing unit. And I would say that that is a far more challenging, um, setup because that anecdote I said of Tommy clapping when the gentleman came into the classroom, we really had um, an opportunity to make the environment and the room and the feeling of the room, we had the opportunity to shape it. Whereas when I'm going into the housing unit, I'm going into their home. Um, the TV's on. There's people playing a wild card game, um, you know, playing video games, coloring, talking on the phone. 
there's a lot of distractions and I'm a guest. So I don't quite have the opportunity as I once did to set the stage and, and set the, the, the tone of the atmosphere. I have to go in and kind of do my little pitch and see who wants to come over um, to see class. And again, it's more challenging, especially when it's younger people because they are a little embarrassed or shy, especially doing something as silly as an acting class. Um, you know, and their friends might be watching, or it might be mealtime, or visitors, or, you know, have to go get their medication, or a phone call. You know, there's a lot that can be disruptive and distract- distracting, um, but I have to be respectful of that, because this is not my space, you know, this is their space. Um, and there are pros and cons to this. One is that you might get more students involved by watching it and being interested in it. Um, the cons are some of the things I mentioned, which are the distractions. Um, I come once a week. So the class is once a week, every Thursday. And back to the point about jail being very transitory, people might be at court or at school or have a visit or have lost. Um, so I never really know who I'm going to get. And sometimes I'll have you know, the same faces over and over, but then they might leave in a couple of weeks. So um, it is kind of every day is a different challenge. And and sometimes, you know, someone's too sad and doesn't want to participate and wants to stay in bed or something like that. And other times you've got a ton of joy and a lot of fun and you have, you know, seven or eight young ladies all taking acting class and it's for the, for the two hours and it's an utter blast. Um, so that's something that I think I've learned is, especially as developing my teaching skills, how to be malleable, how to be present and, and, and judge what's happening in the moment to, to figure out how to proceed with the class, um, kind of be open to what your students are giving you, whether they want to do more scene work or whether they kind of just maybe want to talk. Um, and yeah, that's definitely because I have I didn't really teach. I taught some young kids before, um, but otherwise, this is kind of my big um, experience teaching now for the past two years. I'm I'm learning something definitely new about it every day. So, well, again, yeah. it's, it's really impressive. It's really um, enlightening. Something I would not have thought of. So I'm really glad you you talked about it on here. And, uh, it's very impressive. You're doing, you're doing good work. So, so it's not like one group for a limited number of weeks, like eight or 10 weeks. It's just literally an ongoing weekly thing. And as you said, who comes can vary. Gotcha. And, uh, yes. And it often, obviously because, um, the cell other studio, which hires me, they're dependent on grants. So that is often very challenging too. Sometimes there'll be grants where there's more classes to fill and sometimes the classes, the grant money alters. So we're kind of um, at the mercy of that as well. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. And does it ever come to a point where you guys actually put together an actual play or performance of some sort that they do for the other prisoners or no? Um, for the, for the guys, once there was kind of a sharing, we developed 
a few pieces that we kind of rehearsed um, and invited other individuals um, and other guys from the housing unit to come and watch this performance, which um, is really special because I think as an actor, I love performance. You know, that's, I love rehearsal and developing, but there's also such joy to performance. And so seeing kind of the natural performers that emerged with this opportunity was really special. Um, and, and, and the pride that the guys had wanting to share their work. Um, but because it isn't, because you never know who you're really going to get um, week after week, you never know who's going to be there or whatnot. It makes putting a, like a more cohesive performance or production together challenging. Um, so I think, you know, there's been some great documentaries out there. Um, Shakespeare Behind Dars, which was a Shakespeare class in a prison. Um, and that teacher had the luxury of going, I, I don't know if it was every day, you know, but it was consistently and, and the individuals were able to put on a, a show, a completed show. And that's not quite possible just in the nature of how the tale is. Um, yeah, but I think, especially Tommy Demonkoff, this, this mentor and now the head of all arts education for the DOC, he is really amazing. And I think he understands the importance of sharing your work um, with, you know, family members, people outside, and other individuals who are incarcerated. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, again, that's that's really great. Um, what was the name of that documentary you just said? Shakespeare Behind Bars. Got it. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I definitely recommend that was really impactful. That kind of documentary, I think watching that, that always instilled a little desire in me to, to do this kind of work because acting has been so transformational for me in my life. And so seeing it, other people uh, get a lot out of it is really inspiring. Can recommend that documentary? Absolutely. By the way, not a huge deal, but you are kind of occasionally cutting in and out or getting a little staticky. I don't know if you're moving around or something, but um, you may okay. want to like, put the phone down on speaker or stay in one place or something if you can. But um, okay, I am I am staying in one place, but I'll try and be more conscious about holding the phone. Not, not a huge deal. Just just wanted to mention it. Um, cool. So that's again, that's really impressive. So you said you do that, and you're also a server at a restaurant, right? Um, yep, yep. <laughs> it's funny. It's it's such a shame, and we're going to redo it, um, as I mentioned to you off the air. But, you know, I, I had a great um, episode the other day, and something got screwed up technically with the recording. It's a real bummer. But we were talking a lot about restaurant life for actors and about the good yep. and the bad of it, the flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's what I wanted to ask you, which is with all this stuff, you know, this is one of the big topics of this podcast, you know, how is it for you balancing your time? Are you frequently having to change shifts or call out of things to go to missions <laughs> and whatnot? Or how are you with the time management part? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, I would love to do impactful, meaningful work all the time, but the, the joy of a restaurant job is that it is really flexible. And especially in New York, I would say a, a lot of uh, servers are also artists and actors and oh, yeah. are looking to swap shifts, you know. So 
and that makes it pretty easy. Um, so it's definitely beneficial if you want maximum flexibility, which is what I do. Um, and I have a rule for myself, which is if I ever have an acting thing come up, um, I always like do that first. So that means calling out of a shift or, I mean, I always try and get it taken care of and, and switched, but I, acting always comes first. Um, so I think it's important, I, and I don't like calling out of my teaching work, you know, but I don't mind calling out of my server work, because in the end, that is just a, purely a survival job for me. Um, so it's pretty easy to get things shifted around, um, and the pickup shifts when you need more money and stuff like that. I think I'm also really lucky my manager is very, very kind and understanding. So there have been times when I said, you know, I have a commercial audition and I can't find anyone to cover my shift. Is it okay if I come in late? And he's pretty understanding about that. Um, so yeah, I try and, I try and work there as little as possible, to be honest. Um, it's funny. I would find working at the restaurant a lot more challenging than working in a jail, which is very ironic. No, I, I get that. In fact, that's one of the things that came up, you know, and I, I did the restaurant thing myself for a long time, but I, that was years ago, and I, I really couldn't do it yeah. anymore. So I give I give restaurant workers all the credit and respect in the world. But um, yes, so uh, so you so yeah, every, saying, this, you know all these. I think everyone are, everyone should work in a service industry job at one point in their life. That's that's funny. I said something similar. I said, yeah, we're talking about you know. Don't ever get annoyed at a server until you've done a, a server shift. Yeah. Um, yeah, for real. Exactly. exactly. So, um, <laughs> it's, but they, these are all, again, the things, the balance that artists have to strike, as you said. So it's interesting that your policy is, you know, make the acting work always the number one priority. Um, yeah. And that is, you know, a, a choice and, and something a lot of people do, do try to do maybe, uh, or, or should. Um, if they if they really want acting to be uh, you know their career or that part of their life, so um, are you in any of the unions at this point or no? I am not. I have worked on. I did one. I was a, a small role on the TV show Pose, which was is, is was Ryan Murphy's new show about um, the ballroom scene in New York in the eighties. Um, and that was a SAC project, um, but you get three refusals. Yeah. So that was my first refusal. Um, I really, I want to be EMC, which um, that's for the equity, for actors equity. I want to be EMC, equity membership candidate, which I will become this summer after doing a show this summer. Um, but I don't want to be either SAG or uh, equity right now um i think i i don't quite have an, my res i don't think my resume can quite be competitive against a lot of people who are equity and so at the i mean fully so there's a lot of non-union work that i get and that i'm using to to work and and that sort of thing so i think there's a lot of risk in turning equity too soon um i've seen it with some friends i've turned it they've bought Luckily, and they were able to join the union right off the bat out of school, and and then they didn't really have that many things on their resume that made them kind of competitive against other equity actors. Um, 
you know, yeah. So for me, it's like I want more jobs and I'm willing to not get paid as much, you know, as I'm, as I'm building this career and, and building relationships with different theaters and, and getting more experience on my resume. Um, but that being said, being non-union sucks if you have to go to EPAs. I hate going to EPAs. I hate waking up early, but you got to do it. <laughs> So, well, yeah, that, that is, that part is definitely true. But no, you're getting to exactly what I wanted to ask you, which is certainly that's very common and, and it is very wise, it seems, to, to stay non-union as long as you can. And, uh, there is plenty of non-union work. And, uh, so, so many people do say that and, and it makes perfect sense. Um, but what I wanted to, what I was getting at was, you know, in terms of making it a priority over your day jobs and so forth, do you have rules for yourself about, you know, what work you will or won't take? Do you take non-paying work? What are your criteria, if any? For- mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I've gone kind of in waves about that. Um, there, I, I used to take anything and everything um, when I was first out of college, and and that actually helped because the first show I did was completely non-paid. It took me like an hour and a half to get to rehearsal up in the Bronx, um, but I had a blast. Um, and that director, two years later, she actually called me and booked me for my first voiceover gig for Vagisil, the product. Um, and so that's a perfect example of, you know, you never know when these contacts are going to come back in your life. You know, two years ago I did an unpaid show with her and here I have my, you know, a, a job. Um, so I always felt like, you know, no matter what I did, if it was unpaid or whatever, I made a new friend, I made a new connection, um, I had a great experience, I was able to invite people to come see the show that I was in. Um, and then I started booking kind of more paying work and I told myself, you're not gonna, don't take unpaid work anymore. <laughs> and then it, this, this past winter, I was like, oh, I'm not booking anything. And I just want to be in something. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do a non-paying thing just because I want to stay fresh and, and, you know, stay sharp. So, so I don't know. It comes in waves, but I do think now more than I used to, I think, is this worth my time? Will I get something out of it? Um, like monetary or, or, or artistically. Um, I once had a teacher that said any job you take should have two of three things. Um, one money, good pay, two artistically fulfilling and three, um, like good, uh, like, like, uh, people will see you, you know, like it will, it will kind of push your career forward. It will be, you know, a good career choice. Um, and I usually do something if it has one of those three things, <laughs> um, just where I'm at. So, yeah, because there's been stuff I've done that I signed up to do or I auditioned to do and I got it, um, that was unpaid and then I realized that it wasn't really even filling me artistically and, and that I realized was not a good use of my time. Um, but it's just nice to be in something, you know, like as actors, we want to work and we want to be able to do our, 
our passion and our career. And we want to be able to, to make work without having to depend on anyone letting us do it, which I find is the biggest challenge in this industry is, you know, if you're a painter, you can paint, right? If, if you're a musician, you can make music and, yeah, I'm I'm goofy and I do improv scenes with my friends and things, but you often have to wait for someone to give you the permission to do your acting work, um, which is why a lot of artists start creating their own work, which is what I'm doing with my friends, is starting to create my own work so that I feel fulfilled, you know, and, and less dependent on someone saying, you can be in my movie or you can be in my play, you know, so... Yep, exactly, and and that's a, a big thing these days. Uh, it's always been, but even more so now. And it is good that there are a lot of ways to do so now with technology and everything. And uh, you know, everything you said is is I think what a lot of actors go through. You know, it's an organic journey, and and you know what's right. Mm-hmm. But you brought up some very important points uh, that are that are exactly uh, I think uh, you know what 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 everybody deals with. Um, the project that you were saying that you did it and you started to realize that it really wasn't fulfilling you in any way. Did you end up completing it or did you did you quit? I did. I completed it. It was uh, not a huge uh, time commitment. Um, but it, it reminded me, maybe, I think the reason I, I did it is because it was kind of, I needed, it was a time in the winter when I needed a little bit of an ego boost. So I started auditioning for things that I might not normally audition for. And it, you know, feels wonderful to be cast in something and to start working on a project. Um, but it made me kind of reevaluate again going forward. Um, you know, what, I mean, because again, as I was talking about earlier, like, I feel like, oh, there's not enough time in every single day to do all the things I want to do. There's constantly more work. So you have to make decisions about what is what what are the best things that you can put your time towards um, when trying to work on this career, you know, like what should be what should you be doing, submitting, um, sending out headshots and resumes, which auditions should be going on. Um, and obviously the more the more the better, but at the same time I need to be able to cook dinner and then and do my laundry and see my friends. And, um, so it's, I have had to learn a lot about time management and scheduling and scheduling downtime for myself so that I can allow myself to just chill and, and not feel guilty about watching um, Marie Kondo on Netflix, you know? So, um, Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, again, all these things and balance, very important. And, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, uh, you know, this this idea that you can't stop, you can't take a break. Yeah. A lot of actors do, I think, feel that way. And, 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 you know, it's like anything in life. I think you have to, at some point, take a breath just for your sanity and because you're jaded or just, drained all the time plus you need a real life to draw from for your art too totally um yeah also like what you said about you know how you never know what things are going to lead to like the voiceover job and that's always true and i think you know in terms of you completing that other job and just everything even if it's not a paid gig or whatever showing up being professional being positive 
And then, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but it makes it for a good experience for everybody. Right. Yeah, and, and really learning. I've had to learn how to do, like, some self-care, you know, make sure I take care of myself. And um, I think a really, the reason, like, acting is so hard or trying to pursue this career is you just get so much rejection. Yep. Um, and... I, you know, was a little perfectionist in high school and rejection was really hard for me and I had to get used to it quick because it happens every single day, every single day. Um, you know, sometimes in the form of a very nice email, such as we loved your work, but we were unable to fit you into the part of the puzzle, the casting puzzle, and sometimes to your face. I had, I was in an audition, I prepped a ton for it, read the whole script, prepared like, oh, there were so many sides for it. Some of the sides were, like, the full scene. It was nuts. So I go and do my monologue, expecting him to to ask me to do the sides. And he looks down at his paper and, and kind of furrows his brow and says, you think I'm not going to have you stick around? You know, I'm like, okay, thank you so much. And you have to walk out of there and, and be pleasant and oh, you know, after doing so much work, it's just like, it's like a slap in the face. But, I mean, you have to kind of take it. Yeah, no, that's... Who knows? He's got a lot of, he's got a lot of people ahead of him that he needed to see, whatever, you know, and in the end, I want people who think I'm great. That Those are the kind of people I want to work with. Someone who, who understands my energy and my vibe, you know what I mean? So, because it really is, about a collaboration, you know? So sometimes there are super talented people that I might not vibe with or work with and, and uh, vice versa. And, and sometimes there are really talented people who are just totally, you know, you guys, you vibe as, as collaborators. So I think that's part of it too. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah well, of course, crazy. No, of course it is. And of course, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for everybody, but you, you can't take the whole casting process personally and so forth. And, totally. And no, that's exactly yeah. right. Um, cool. So I do want to go back into your background and your training and everything. So where, sure. where were you born and where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in Minnesota. Um, in a suburb called Wyzetta. Uh, and it was very suburban, like beautiful childhood. Um, you know, went to public schools that had amazing art programs. So there's a lot of theater and, and that was really great. Um, and so it was kind of a big challenge to make the decision to go to New York for college. Um, I, I, my parents are travelers and adventurers. They're, they're actually Canadian, so they, they moved to the United States to live. Um, and I knew I wanted to study acting, but all of a sudden, like, having the opportunity to go to New York and study acting as a BFA, you know, um, it was just like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. This is crazy. Um, and it was a little nerve-wracking, but I love the energy and excitement of New York. And it was such a stark contrast to the suburban life I'd been growing up in. And I remember being so bored in high school. Like, all you do is hang out in people's basements or, you know, outside of the lakes, which is beautiful. It's, I mean, I go back now and I'm like, oh, how peaceful, how relaxing. Um, but I was so ready and excited to go to New York and 
just uh, all the opportunities, all the people. Like, it's crazy when I go back to Minnesota and see the lack of diversity. And I thought that was normal. And now I'm back and I'm like, what? this is crazy. All these, like, Scandinavian descendants, all these white blonde people in Minnesota. Um, yeah, so then I went to NYU, Tisch School of the Arts, and the way NYU works is that they um, place you in a studio. So NYU kind of had this brilliant <laughs> plan, which was we want to profit and and, and use all the studios, the active studios that already exist and have great reputation in New York City, and we want to offer individuals who wanted to go to New York and study at those studios, we all want to offer them also the opportunity to get um, a a degree, a college degree. So they have all these studios, some of them that NYU has created their own, such as the um, new studio on Broadway or the Experimental Theater Wing, Um, but a lot of the studios they kind of ship their students to take class there, to take their acting classes and entrust the students' acting training to that studio. Um, so I was placed in the Stella Adler Studio of Acting. Um, and what they do during the audition process is they kind of see what you're doing naturally as an actor to place you into one of these studios. Um, and then you have to do two years of primary training in the studio of which you were placed. So I did my two years at Ella Adler, and then after your two years of primary training, you have the option to stay at that studio, um, transfer to another studio, or take some classes at, um, they call them advanced studios. So then you can start taking classes at Stone Street, which is the film and television studio. You can study at the classical studio, um, some other different um, uh, advanced studios like that and then there's also the opportunity to study abroad um, for the most part if you studied abroad you had to take an academic semester which I was not about uh, all I wanted to do was take acting classes the more I took my acting classes the more I did not want to take my uh, regular classes um, And but you had to in order to continue a conservatory style semester you had to be accepted into one of the study abroad conservatory programs. For example, they have the experimental theater program in Amsterdam. Um, I think there was an opera program, or maybe that's wrong. There was some program that they were developing to be in Beijing. Um, And then finally there was um, the opportunity to study at RADA in London. which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And that was really exciting for me, and I really wanted that opportunity. So I was able to um, prep and audition for it, and I was really lucky to be accepted. Um, and there were 16 acting students chosen each semester, um, and we got to go over to London and um, take classes at the Royal Academy and take our academic classes at the University of London. Um, and it was just an actor's dream to be there. Um, the two academic classes I took while I was there, one was called Art in London, 
where each class took place. Each week we went to a different museum, and the second class was called Theater in London, and every week we went to see a different play in London. So I was very spoiled. <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, by the way, uh, being a New York guy, and of course I love New York theater and Broadway and everything, but when I went to London, I really was blown away by the theater. Um, yeah. I mean, not that mm-hmm. New York isn't also great, but it's just something about that London yeah. theater is just, it really is truly, truly. Well, what's so amazing there is that theater is, theater is subsidized in London by the government. So, you know, in the United States, we have all this, you know, these capitalist ideas and in art, that kind of shoots us in the foot because then you have a situation where it's like Broadway. It's so expensive for a show to fail yeah. that they have to create sure bets. You know, they have to put Mean Girls or Harry Potter or School of Rock and stuff. These aren't terrific shows, but they're adaptations so that when you have an audience, someone who's coming to New York for their first time and they have the opportunity to see one show. They don't want to necessarily see something that they're not sure they're going to like. They want to see something that they um, are positive that they'll like. And, you know, they like to mean girls the movie, so they'll love the musical, that sort of thing. Um, and in London, I was speaking to an actress there, um, an elderly woman, um, and she said what is so amazing about London is that they have the opportunity to fail. And in fact, theaters are encouraged to fail. Um, Because you have to take a big risk if you're going to have something really exciting happen. And that's why you have Tilda coming from London and the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime and these shows that are coming over from London that are incredibly successful and, and interesting because they're, they're unlike anything we've seen before. Um, but that's because it's it's not so detrimental if a show doesn't succeed that people aren't afraid of taking risks there. Um, and, and, and I think it's important, too, for artists and for audience members to see things that they don't like so that they can say, okay, I don't like that because, and, and to make a decision about it. And, and I think it's, I mean, my theater teachers always said that it's just as important to see bad theater as it is to see good theater. So you can learn what not to do or what you don't like. Um, and it just kind of sharpens your sense and sharpens your taste and your aesthetic. Um, and, and keeps your mind thinking, you know? Because sometimes when I see a piece of theater that's so amazing, I can't even like, dissect it and learn from it. When you see kind of a bad show, you, you can learn a lot from it. Absolutely, and and that's a great point, what you said about the difference between London and, and America and New York with that, and you're right, the, the results are noticeable for sure. But I want, yeah. I, want, I want to talk about your London training as well as your NYU training, but I want to back you up a little bit again. So growing up, you even as a kid were naturally inclined toward acting? Yeah, I remember I specifically remember this day, which was nuts. And I was five years old, and my mom took my brother and I to see some of our friends in a piece of community theater, um, kind of a, a sort of thing where you you take acting classes, and at the end of the, the program, they put up a show. Um, so we went to go see our friends perform in the show. It was Alice in Wonderland, and they were siblings performing, uh, playing Humpty, or no, not Humpty Dumpty, a Tweedledum and Tweedledee. 
And I remember my mom looking down at me and asking my brother and I, do you guys want to do this? And I nodded my head vigorously. Um, and after that, she signed me up for that same kind of class community theater type thing. Um, my first show was Cinderella, where I played little Ella and a mouse. Um, and I just did that every year, multiple sessions. I think it was like two or three different kind of sessions, like the fall, the spring, the summer, um, just endlessly. Um, and that beginning teacher has such a special place in my heart because she really, um, kind of developed my love for theater. Um, I was always so excited Saturday mornings to go to theater classes. It wasn't like ballet where I was happy once I was there, but didn't want to go, you know, once I, before when I was at home, I had to pack and get ready to go to acting class. I always wanted to go. I was always excited. I was always happy when I finished. Um, and so I did that same kind of community theater class thing until probably like freshman year of high school. Um, and in middle school and high school, I did the plays through school. And that's when in high school I started realizing I want to take this a little more seriously. Um, and I started looking for summer programs to do. And the first one I did was after my sophomore year of high school. Um, I went to the Perry Mansfield Performing Arts um, kind of center. Um, it's in the mountains in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Uh, absolutely stunning place to spend your summer. Um, all the cabins are on the mountains. There's a little stream. There's some horses. Um, the dance studio has all open sides. So when you're taking classes in the morning and warming up, you get to watch the beautiful mountainside. Um, so I spent a summer there. Um, there were dancers and actors, and it was just a heavenly, heavenly place. Um, and then the following summer, I was selected to be part of the um, National High School Institute, um, which is also nicknamed Cherubs, um, at Northwestern University, and it's a kind of a pre-college um, summer program for five weeks on the campus of Northwestern in Chicago um, or in Evanston. And you um, you have to be between junior and senior year of high school, and you get to stay in the dorms and use the facilities for classes, and you have four classes during the day, and in the evenings um, are rehearsals for the play. And at the end of the five weeks, you have performances of, your, of the show that you've created and um, that you've been rehearsing, and family can come see and. On the weekends, you can go into Chicago and explore the city. Um, and it was at these two summer programs that I really realized that I wanted to be an actor um, and that I wanted this life and I wanted to be surrounded by this community of people. Um, and, yeah, that's why then after that I got really serious about applying uh, schools for, for acting and, and telling my parents, convincing them that this was really what I wanted to do and I knew it was going to be hard, but to be honest, nobody knows how hard it actually is. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's sort of some of the, the training I had that propelled me um, to choosing this career. 
And uh, were your parents and are your parents supportive of it? <laughs> they have always been incredibly supportive. I have the most amazing parents. They always encouraged me to follow my heart, go after my goals. I think they definitely worry about me. I think they worried about me in the beginning, um, just knowing that it's a really challenging profession. And um, I remember when I was at NYU, I... I really wanted to find a school where I could double major because um, I was just, I, I thought it was a good idea to, you know, have like a backup plan, that sort of thing, like people tell you to do. Um, and so I was like, okay, great. I'm going to NYU. I'm going to double major in acting and something else. And after it was in the spring of my freshman year and my parents came to visit me in New York and we were out for family dinner and, I, I told my parents and I said, you know what, you guys, I have to tell you something. I decided that if I am going to pursue this job and be an actor, I have to do it 100%. And I have to just put all my eggs in one basket, um, no looking back. And I don't want a double major. And my, my parents, you know, they, they smiled and then they thought for a second. My dad said, okay, you'll have to have a double major, but you, you should get a minor. And I said, okay, fine, totally. I'll totally get a minor. And then the following year, I was like, you know what, guys, I really don't want to do a minor. <laughs> I just want to focus 100% on acting. And I'm going to, sorry, Ella, I'm going to have you pause just for one quick moment. Because with, yeah. I didn't even know this, actually, to be honest with you. But with my new recording app, we're at almost an hour. So I have to stop it and start a, a second segment, a part two. So just pause. Okay. You don't have to hang up or anything. Just pause right there and I'll and just, just stay on. I just have to start a new, technically a second part. So if you're listening no to this and you see part one and part two on your, on your thing, you can just, you can after this click on part two. But Ella, just stay okay. right where you are. One moment. All right, you there? I'm there. Cool, I'm sorry there. about that. Welcome to part two, everybody. So you were saying you then <laughs> told them that uh, that uh, you don't even want to do the minor. <laughs> yes. And I think by that point, they realized that I was 110% serious about this, and I was going to give it my all. So, And I've always been stubborn. <laughs> so they realized there's nothing they could do, and, and they were fine with that. My parents have been... They are just so, so supportive. And, and the hardest thing, though, I have to admit, was admitting to them once I graduated how challenging it is um, in this profession. Um, you know, because, like, getting accepted to NYU was very exciting, and, and I had something to show for that. And and all my, my training at NYU, I, I did great in my classes, and I was really excited to to share all the exciting things I was learning and exciting things I was performing in. Um, and I think uh, my parents, they they really want me to be happy. And, and so some of the times that I've struggled in my career to, to feel good about um, where I'm at and, and to feel good about the rejection, you know, they can tell in my voice that I'm not, you know, always doing my best. And so 
some of the one of the major things I had to to realize was that I have to you know it's great I want to tell them when when great things happen and when I book a show or book a TV show or whatever but I also have to be honest with them about how hard it is um, and in that way they are able to support me even more so um, and I don't have to try and show them how well I'm doing you know and, and through communicating to them, they start to understand what the business is like more because because they're both in marketing, so they have this is completely different world for them. Um, and because you know, you I will see my relatives or see people who don't really understand the business, um, and they'll say, "Oh, we need to be on Broadway," and and I think all actors can equally agree that that is a annoying question. You're like, I don't, I I hope soon, I don't know, you know, like. Do you know how hard it is? So kind of being up with people about the challenges of this career has has made it easier for myself. I feel like I don't have to prove anything to anyone. Um, I just have to, you know, keep hustling. And, and in the end, my parents know how hard I work. So I think that they respect that. Um yeah, I don't know. Do you find a lot of challenges in your, in your career? Are you, are you an actor? So I was, and of course I get everything you're saying, and now I'm, I'm more of a writer and, and doing this podcast and other, and other, other, uh, different projects I'm working on as a writer and as a journalist and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, I was an actor, and that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to do this. And yes, I understand everything you're saying. And I think the broader yeah. point, too, you know, is that what people who aren't in these kind of fields don't realize is, you know, if you're really committing to this, it's not a simple, straightforward path like other jobs and other right. careers. It's it's on and off. It's working, not working. It's doing other totally. things. It's, it's not a simple one, two, three, you know, kind of formula or anything. And it's hard for people to, for some people to uh, wrap their, their heads around that. Um, but no, good for you. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask about the details of some of your training because I'm fascinated by training. It's one of the big topics sure. I want to talk about on this podcast. And I want to get to the London part of your training as well. Um, right. So, because yeah. so, I have a lot of questions about, about the about the. British training style. So, first of all, at NYU, Stella Adler, um, obviously people know that Stella Adler is one of the major figures in the American acting, um, you know, movement uh, back in the day. And uh, there's different, you know, schools of thought, and she did it one way, and Lee Strasberg did it another way, and so forth. So tell us about what the Stella Adler style, methodology, technique, training is all about? Sure. So, um, she, to give a brief history, as I'm sure you know, and a lot of your listeners probably know, you know, she studied with Stanislavski, and she was actually one of the only members of the group theater in the United States how she went and studied with him. Um, and... What I like about Cell Adler is that she um, requires you to use your imagination and to use technique. Um, and so I think that the studio develops really smart actors. Um, 
you know, and, and obviously, again, all these all these techniques, Meisner, Strasberg, Adler, they're all different languages to help you do the same thing, which is be a good actor. And and so it's a grab bag too. If something works for you in in this in this technique, and and something else works for you in a different technique, like use it. You know, whatever works. Um, but her thought is that you it doesn't really, you know, for for Strasberg. He says, like, if do an as if. So if you're Ophelia experiencing the death of your father, act, the actor, Ella actor, should imagine the time when my dog died to help me remember that. And and that can totally work too. But so Adler's thought is, I will never know what it is to be the, the Prince of Denmark. So therefore, I have to do my research and, and use that to imagine it. Um, so it's a lot about imagination. Um, it's a lot about figuring out your objectives and your actions, your specific actions that you do um, to achieve that objective. We are always tra- taught at Adler, um, our objective has to be something that you want the other character to do, think, or feel. Um, and we ha- I was trained by Alice Saltzman, who's the head of acting at Adler, and she always just, phrased these objectives in a really delicious way. And she, she would help you figure out your objectives. She would keep brainstorming with you until she saw your eyes lit up. And that's when she knew it was going to be a good objective for you to keep fighting. So throughout my career, I continue to, to try and search for the objective in the scene that makes my eyes light up. Um, and then you use different actions. You know, if, if I'm trying to get someone to kiss me, I'm going to tempt them. I'm going to flirt with them. I'm going to tease them. Different actions that I, actable things. Um, right. It's not about right. playing emotion, right? Yeah, so actually that's exactly what I want to talk about. I want to break this down a little bit because these are very common concepts that actors are taught and obviously there's different different styles and philosophies to it. But I really want to break this down because I'm fascinated by it. I, I was never I never had too much formal training when I was doing this stuff and I at the time I was sort of stubborn and I, I didn't always take well to it, but now I'm I'm really interested and curious about it. So so Give me an give an example of what a good objective is in this in this technique. Um, like someone that one that was really useful that she gave she that she helped me develop for one of my scenes in, in our scenes for the class was I need you to wake up, um, and that you know doesn't literally need I need someone to wake up out of bed right because I'm putting a scene with them. So the um, objective to be clear the objective in this case, anyway, is is getting someone else to do something. Yes, it's always on the other person. Oh, it is always on the other person. Yes. Okay, That's what we again, in this, is, this is interesting. Okay, so, so the objective because is to get someone else to do something. Okay. The thought is that when you're in a scene, you always want something from another person. Um, and I actually just read Sarah Rule's book, and she said, like, that's so silly, you know. I mean, she, 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 not that she's dismissing all of it, but she goes, not, she says that she doesn't feel like we always want something from another person in real life, um, which I think is totally valid. Sometimes I feel like I don't want anything from another person, but maybe you just want them to leave you alone. I don't know. Um, but 
it makes it really playable for an actor and gives you something very specific to do so that you're not on stage just kind of saying the lines or, or playing the emotion, like playing a kind of general sadness rather than something really specific and a little bit more complicated or playing the atmosphere. You're trying to do something really specific to get something for your partner. And it, we were trained that it can't be like, I need you to shut the door. Um, it's got to be like, I need you to feel something or I need you to think something. I mean, I guess you could do like, I need you to kiss me. That one's good. But that kind of also encapsulates feeling a sort of way, um, you know. So it's how do you make it active, which is how do you make the scene dynamic? Um Right. So again, and this is the kind of thing that, frankly, when I was an actor, I didn't understand, which is, as you said, you can't really just play emotions, um, and, or, or in this, in this, in this philosophy, you can't. And yes, yeah, so you're taking concrete actions toward that, that objective. Um, that's, right. that's, so that makes it very, um, you know, concrete and playable, as you said, it's, it, it makes it something tangible, essentially, right? Totally, yes. Yeah. And specific. And, and specific. And I think two things about, for, about Adler, is like, they're trying to get the actor to, to feel comfortable and feel alive in, in, on the stage. So, because mm-hmm. if I go onto the stage to play Sadness, I'm probably thinking that I'm on the stage, but if I'm going there to really make my scene partner say something or think something, um, it keeps it very present um, or very alive, right? If I, every day I go onto that same stage and I'm constantly trying to get that scene partner to do something and maybe in the end I succeed and maybe in the end I don't. Um, but another part of Adler that also does this is, is a lot about doing things is um, how we call it Adler technique. It's how, how you use your props and, and cover entrances. Um, so a huge lesson and just something so usable and, and, and wonderful is so uh, Adler's technique of a covered entrance, which means that as an actor, you don't just walk on the stage or you don't just open the door and walk in. You want to cover your entrance with something um, so you can be on or so that you can tell the audience where you've just been coming from. So you've eliminated... I'm sorry, Ella. You, 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 you broke up again slightly. Explain the covered entrance idea again. Yes. I'm sorry. Is this better? Yes, thanks. Um... It, it, the idea is it, it tells the, the audience where the character just come from, was done, and it eliminates the kind of awkward, I am now entering the stage kind of actory thing. Right, um, right. Right, so maybe I'm coming in reading my mail with my backpack on my shoulder. I just come home from school and I can put the mail Gotcha. Um, okay, cool. So um, I, I know you have to go soon, and I, I'm sorry to keep saying this, but there is something up with our connection. It it, it is it is getting a little tougher to hear you. Um, but um, 
I, I would love to have you back because I really want to continue this conversation about training and other things. Again, this is like one of the things I'm really intrigued by. And then now that we've gotten into some detail about these techniques, I, I really do want to hear more. Um, so I would love to have you back and I'm also going to be doing group discussion episodes. So you'll be welcome to come on those as well. But, um, but one, one quick last question before we wrap up. And then, uh, as I said, we'll, we'll have you on again another time and, and continue this because I don't want this to, to be the end of this conversation. But, um, when you were in London, um, and again, this is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to expound on this more when we have more time, but I am fascinated by this idea that there is a big difference in the British style of training. And we've seen, uh, in Hollywood, you know, this just constant explosion of British actors yeah. dominating TV and films over the last decade or even two decades or beyond but it's just more and more apparent constantly and they're getting tons of american roles you see these great tv series right. movies and you think you're watching an american actor and you're watching a british actor playing an american it's it's quite a thing and when you do some research into it one of the concepts you find is this idea that um, and this is obviously a generalization, but that the British acting training is much more technical. It's seen much more seriously as an actual tangible technical skill. And that's kind of why um, often these British actors are so successful. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or did you experience anything in London that, you know, that speaks yeah. to what it is, what it is that's so particular and different about their training? Um, the first thing is that British actors um, all have such incredible um, foundation in classical work and in Shakespeare, and they really know how to, how to use that text and how to use their, their bodies kind of in this, in this more expanded way. Um, I think this is my own personal opinion. I don't, <laughs> so yeah, that it has to do with um, kind of um, the way that they see actors. In, in England, it's, it seems as if like, if you go to a really great acting school, such as Lambda or Rada or the Bristol Fick, and you get some really skillful professional training for three years. And then because those schools are so profound, once you graduate, you're pretty set up with agents and that sort of things. And, and it's okay. thought of as a really professional, like great profession. You it's, know? Real, it's really the, treated like a craft, like a trade school kind of thing. Yeah. Like a trap. And, and you have to train. Right. And I think in the United States, we have, with Hollywood and with movies, right. and our obsession with celebrities, yep. there's kind of this feeling that you just need to be um, pretty, or <laughs> or anyone can be an actor, and everyone's trying to be an actor so that they can get famous. Um, or I don't think actors go into it to be famous. I think they go into it because they love acting. Right. And they really study the craft. And here there's a, a sensation that um, 
oh, it's raw. Like, we have this obsession with raw talent. Right. And this obsession with is natural. But right. the best actors are the ones with an incredible amount of specific training. And for me, that's more impressive than someone who didn't have to put any work into it at all. I think it's so impressive the hours of dedication and work that, that actors put into so interesting and I think their technique that they learned from the stage because they are trained you have to have more technique stage I and you're able to translate that work and just minimize it some adjustments for some film technique um, but you see are able to to make the opposite jump from film to stage, where trained, um, the, the ability to do the same, the same run over and deepen it. Makes sense. No, that makes sense. Um, all right, so again, we're going to have you back so we can continue talking about all this because I really want to delve more into it. Uh, but for now, I know you have to go. This has been great. Thank you so much. Um, yes, thank you, you so much for having me. Absolutely. Do you want to share any of your own social media, your website or anything like that, or no? Oh, sure. My website is my full name, EllaNicoleSmith.com. Um, on it, you'll find a funny little short that I wrote and, and started in called Period, about a girl getting her period. Um, otherwise, my Instagram is ebell, E-B-E-L-L, 9292. And you can see some of my stuff there, some pictures of me in some shows and uh, pose and stuff like that. Great. And we didn't even get to talk about the other thing that you're working on creating, but again, we will do it when we have you back. Um, and we'll also put the links to all these things uh, in the episode notes here. And if anybody wants to reach me, is interested in the podcast or anything, um, you can email me at Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word, Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, that's in all the, the show info as well. So, Ella, again, uh, we will definitely have you back to continue this. Uh, but this has been great. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. A pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.